If you have your Bible this morning, and I trust that you do, if you can open with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, welcome to week 3 of our Armor of God series. Today we get into that first piece of armor, but may we continually be reminded that we live in a spiritual world and we are in a spiritual war. Again, spiritual warfare is not a metaphor for us as Christians. It is a reality. And unfortunately, many Christians, especially in our culture, respond to Paul's description of spiritual warfare like they do to descriptions of smallpox. Like, it's a terrible scourge that affected them, but it really doesn't affect me. And now many probably wouldn't say that, but many people live like it. I was living, listening to a message this week. A pastor was speaking on Ephesians 6, 12, and he said something that was just kind of light went off in my head. He said, listen, the Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities. And he said, the Bible is clear about it. There is a demonic realm. And he said, my question for the American church is, where do we think those demons exist? Do we only think they exist in India or in Africa or somewhere over there? While forgetting the fact that they exist in our world, they are alive in America. They are alive, not well, but they're, they are here, plaguing our families, plaguing our children, plaguing our, our world. And here's the reality. Soldiers only take their armor and weapons seriously and learn how to use them when they actually believe they're going to have to. When they believe that they're in a battle. And we've been given the armor by God because we're in a war. Yet one of Satan's most effective tools and schemes over our lives is to lull us into complacency whereby we as a church run away from the battle instead of seeing ourselves right in the middle of it. Yet in his grace, because we are in a battle, God has given us six pieces of armor that we must put on in the midst of our everyday lives. And Paul's main imagery, as we saw two weeks ago, when Paul is using this imagery of armor, his main imagery is from the divine warrior that we read about in Isaiah 59. In fact, as we said then, Isaiah gives us five pieces of the armor. In the, the book of Isaiah, the only piece that Isaiah does not give us is the shield of faith. And the reason being is that all throughout the Old Testament, God is that shield. But we can learn a lot from the role and the purpose of the armor of the Roman soldier. Think about this. Paul, when he wrote these words, was in prison. He was probably looking at soldiers a lot throughout the day. And the pieces of armor listed in Ephesians 6 are arranged in the same order in which the Roman soldier would have put his armor on every day. So this morning we come to that first piece of armor, the belt of truth. And here's what we need to know today. There is a God. He is a God of truth, and he prizes truthfulness in every way. Now, there is a famous quote from writer extraordinaire Mark Twain who says this, Truth is stranger than fiction, but it's because fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities, truth isn't. But just how strange can truth be? Let me give you a few examples. There is a mailbox in Japan's Sasami Bay that is more than 32 feet under the sea. Imagine being that mailman. I don't know how that works. 
Another one, it cost the U.S. Mint almost twice as much to mint each penny and nickel as the coins are actually worth. Here's another one. found this extraordinary. In 1518, a literal dance fever broke out in the French city of Strasbourg that caused hundreds of people to dance uncontrollably for a month. I'm not talking about disco fever. I'm talking about a dance fever. Another one, the longest time between two twins being born was 87 days. Poor mom. And then one of my, one of my favorites, cows, according to language specialists, linguistic specialists, cows have regional accents like humans, meaning they move with different accents depending on the places of their origin. Talk to Brother Curtis, ask him about that one. And then this one. In 1923, jockey Frank Hayes won a race at Belmont Park in New York despite hearing this being dead. He had a heart attack mid-race, but his body stayed on the horse until the horse crossed the finish line for victory. Imagine that one. And then this one. Will, tell me how this would work. During World War II, the, cruise, the crew of the British submarine H.M. Trident kept a fully grown reindeer called Pollyanna aboard their vessel for six weeks. <laughs> it was apparently a gift from the Russians. I don't know. And then, no, Pollyanna. And then in 1993, imagine this one, San Francisco had to hold a referendum over whether a police officer named Bob Geary was allowed to patrol while carrying his ventriloquist dummy called Brendan O'Smarty. Imagine me pulling over by that cop. You roll your window down, here he stands, and all of a sudden, here comes the dummy. I mean, it might work. I, I don't know. But truth can be stranger sometimes than fiction. But here's the problem. We as the church, if we aren't careful, we live in a society that tells us that the truth that we are called to believe is nothing but fiction. And we have to understand the reality, brothers and sisters, that there is no room for us to be unsure concerning the nature of truth. As scripture tells us, God is the origin of truth and our enemy is the father of all lies. So truth is basically God's opinion on any issue. So what God says concerning an issue is truth. And as Christians, we care about truth. We resolve to speak the truth despite its cost, not simply because we're concerned with fact and fiction or true and false, but because we have come as Christians to know a higher truth, the deeper truth, the personal truth, who makes some claims true and other claims false. In fact, Jesus is not just one truth among many truths, but he is the truth. He is the, the one way to the one who truly matters. And we care about truth not because truth is our God. We care about truth because not because it just serves our interests. We care about truth because Jesus is our God and he is the truth. And he's the truth that makes all true claims to be true. So let us dive in this morning to God's, or God's word, to Paul's words, and examine the belt of truth that holds everything together. 
If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read verses 10 through the very first part of verse 14. And Paul writes these words. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand. Therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So let's pray. Father, we come before you, God, the God of all truth. And Lord, we know that in you we live, we move, we have our being. But Lord, you are truth. Jesus, truth is a person. And we are able to have a personal relationship with truth. Lord, help us to align our lives by that truth. Lord, help us today to see the belt of truth as that which holds our lives together. Lord, just speak in this moment, O Spirit of truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, and you may be seated. So Paul does not start with the, the high-profile armor of the sword or the shield. Instead, he begins by telling us to put on the belt of of truth like a belt truth holds everything together and what we are declaring this morning is that truth can be known truth must be known especially in light of the enemy who jesus called the father of all lies now sun Tzu wrote an influential ancient chinese book on military strategy called anyone the art of war in which he said this all warfare is based on deception. Therefore, when capable, reign in capacity. When active, act inactive. When near, make it appear that you're far away. When you're far away, that you are near. Offer the enemy a bait to lure him, feign disorder, and strike him. Pretend inferiority and encourage his arrogance. For you see, the thing about deception is it is deceiving. Deception is deceiving. It's deceiving because it, it's rarely outright. It's a lie that's cloaked in or, or tweaked in a version of truth, but yet it's a fraud, it's an illusion, it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Deception doesn't announce to us, hey, I'm here to ruin your life or mess up your day. It just lures us into a trap until it has us. Therefore, think about this. How do we beat deception? How do we beat deception? The answer is, of course, knowing the truth and walking in truthfulness. But think of it like this. Why does deception do such a number on us? Why does deception do such a number on us? And here's what I believe. We grant authority to whomever or whoever, whatever we believe. We grant authority to whomever or whatever we believe. The devil has no authority over you, Christian. Hear this. The devil has no authority over you, Christian, except the authority that you give him when you believe his lies. 
He has no authority over you except the authority that you give him when you believe his lies. And the more that we believe him, the more control we give him over us. So maybe we understand that reality, but let me kind of give some context this morning of where we're going. In ancient times, Roman soldiers wore tunics, basically a masculine form of a dress. And the tunic was held snugly in place by a belt around the waist. That belt would also hold all the pieces of armor together. Now, Ian Duguid, in his book, The Whole Armor of God, notes this of the belt of truth. He says, the belt was the logical place to start because it was the first piece of the soldier's equipment to be strapped on. It went underneath the armor to hold all the other clothing out of the way. In those days when people wore long flowing robes, the belt enabled a person to run and fight without being encumbered. And this is what he says, to update the image for us, it is challenging to fight if your pants keep falling down, in case you were wondering. But the soldier's leather belt that they wore was really a status symbol. They would wear it at all times, even when they were off duty. And there were strips of leather that would go down to their knees that would protect their lower body. And all the soldiers would use their belts to really show their status, to show their rank, to show what wars they had fought in and won. In fact, when a Roman soldier was being disciplined for inappropriate behavior, a superior officer would often punish the Roman soldier by making them stand outside of headquarters dressed only in their tunics. Without their belts, they looked rather ridiculous, and basically it was something that embarrassed the Roman soldier. So to be caught without their belts was an embarrassment to them, but let me say this. Brothers and sisters, for us to be caught in this day and age without the belt of truth is also an embarrassment to us. It's an embarrassment to us if we don't come to know the truth. So I want to lay before us three callings that we can see from, especially from verse 14 that Paul gives us. Number one is this. We are called to stand. We are called to stand. In verses 13 and 14, Paul says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Think about this. Paul doesn't say having done all to stand firm, take a break. Having done all to stand firm, do nothing. Having done all to stand firm, take a vacation. No, having done all to stand firm, stand Stand. As we said last week, God gives us a glorious standing by which we stand in grace. We stand in mercy that is new for us every morning. We stand in faith. We stand in courage because of his strength, not ours. And we stand together. But here's the deal. Whenever we envision a battlefield, we often envision two opposing armies Let's say one here and one here facing off against each other in battle. The battle cry is given and these two armies now charge across the field towards each other where they meet in the middle with a clash of blood and steel. Therefore, it would seem that Paul would say, charge into battle. But he doesn't. Instead, he simply tells us, stand. In fact, he's so serious about this that he says the word stand or withstand four times in verses 11 through 14. 
As we said last week, standing was a military term meaning to hold one's position. Now, why in the world would Paul give such orders? What kind of plan of attack is that? Just hold your position. Who's ever won a war just holding your ground? And this is where we are reminded. Please hear this. If you're taking notes, write this down. We are not called to win the war. The war has already been won. The war has already been won. Jesus won the entire war when he died, was put in a tomb, and he rose again three days later. What we do is we stand firm in what Christ has done for us. We stand firm in that. And so when we think about this idea of the Roman army, the Roman army was so powerful because of their military Formation. In fact, it's said that even the smallest Roman security force was a guard made up of around 16 men. These 16 men would be spaced out over 36 square yards, or in other words, one soldier for every six feet. And they were trained to focus on one thing, the six feet around you. So each soldier trained one thing. They were told to stand your ground with each doing their part, protecting their six feet, It is said that 16 Roman soldiers could take on 500 attacking enemies. They were just called to stand their ground, protect their little piece of land. And Christian, take heart. God does not expect us to fight the swarming hordes of the enemy all by ourselves. It is not you against all the spiritual forces of evil. In fact, think of it this way. We are not fighting for victory We are fighting from the victory that has already been given to us through Christ. We are fighting not for victory as if it all depends on us. No, we're fighting from the victory that has already come to us by Christ. And again, if the idea of standing sounds weird, think about it like this. Jesus did not go around in his ministry looking for demons to conquer. If Jesus did so, it would mean that the demons set the agenda for his ministry and not God the Father. But Jesus knew exactly what God the Father wanted him to do, and he went about doing it. And as he did it, there were times where demons would come upon him and in the middle of him or stand in front of where he was going. And what he would do is he would stand against it and he would defeat it. And so we have this call today to stand firm in the midst of the battle and not shrink back. But let me tell you this, Christian. The more, the more you, in the midst of being attacked by the enemy, the more you give yourself to obedience to God, the more you're going to be attacked. The more you're going to be attacked. Let me just tell you, I, I remember a line that Brother Curtis used to always say, Satan doesn't beat a dead horse. When you get in the game, when you get in the game and you are serious about the will of God and doing the will of God, guess whose attention you get? The enemy's. And he will come at you, and obeying him, obeying God more and more does not make the the devil go, I'm just going to leave them alone. No, he turns up the heat in our lives. But praise be to God, we have been promised the full reward from God, and we have been given the full armor of God. So therefore, we're called to stand. But then number two, we are called to readiness. Now, we are called to readiness. Paul says, having fastened on the belt. As I said, Roman soldiers always wore a tunic, an outer garment that served as their primary clothing. Ordinary, it draped very loosely upon them, but 
since the great part of ancient combat was hand-to-hand combat, the last thing you would want is a potential hindrance of having loose clothing for the enemy to be able to get a hold of. So before the battle and before the, the soldiers served, the tunic was carefully tucked in under this leather belt. This allowed the soldier to be ready and to be unhindered. Now, I do love, for those of you who have the King James Version, so my Bible says, having fastened on the belt. What does the King James Version say? For those that have it, anybody? Having your loins girded. So having your loins girded or girding your loins. That's in place of a belt. Now, that is an old saying that isn't used much anymore. In fact, most of us haven't seen it used outside of the Bible. We don't hear it said outside of the Bible, but we do see it used throughout Scripture. In fact, let me give you a few. In Exodus 12, in Exodus 12, God is preparing for the children of Israel to partake in the first Passover meal before they leave Egypt. And God instructs Moses in Exodus 12, 11, this way. Now you shall eat it, the Passover, in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. So God says, here's how you will partake of it. Ready. Ready to go. Ready with readiness. In fact, concerning his own second coming, Jesus said in Luke 12, 35, let your loins be girded about. So Jesus said, be ready for my coming. Ready yourselves. Peter used this same expression in 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So girding your loins or putting on the belt is a sign of readiness. And the soldier who was serious about the battle in front of them, the soldier that was serious about winning the battle was was sure to secure his tunic to his belt. Before we move on, let me say this again. The belt held everything together, including the loose ends of the tunic, which begs the question for us. Please let this question just sit over you this morning. Are you content with the loose ends of your spiritual life? Are you content with loose ends in your spiritual life? Listen, if you are content with infrequent interest in prayer, if you're content with infrequent interest in worship, I put something on our Facebook page last night that it was said across the nation, across the nation, professing believers across the nation, over 80% of professing believers across the nation don't attend church regularly. Think about that reality, that there are 80% of people who claim to be Christians who are more than okay with there being no visible representation of the worship of God corporately in our world. No baptisms taking place, no communions taking place. Totally okay. Totally okay with that. Listen, if you are indifferent towards spiritual truth and knowing truth, if you're indifferent towards sin in your own life, if you are indifferent to being held accountable by other brothers and sisters, if you're content with a small understanding of a great and glorious God, then you are a burdened and impeded soldier and you are not prepared to stand. 
In fact, you are prepared to fall. Brothers and sisters, we, ha- we cannot be content with the loose ends of our spiritual lives. We are called to ready ourselves for the battle. Even last night with our family, we were sitting with our family saying, and this is a weird conversation, but in what ways do you feel like the enemy has targeted you this week? As I said last week, parents or grandparents, if we don't ever give any thought of how the enemy is attacking our families or our children, all we're doing is handing our kids over to the enemy. May that never be said of us. May that never be said of us. So we are called to readiness. And then number three, we are called to truth. We are called to, or another way of putting it, we are called to or even held together by truth. 2,000 years ago, a Roman governor named Pilate asked a very profound, familiar question of a man who was on trial, who was about to be executed. The man we know as Jesus the Christ. Jesus in John 18, 37 told Pilate, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And Jesus said this, everyone who listens or everyone who is of the truth listens to me and in john 18 38 pilate said this or asked this question what is truth what is truth now we have no way of knowing whether pilate's question was a serious question or just a sarcastic question but here's what we do know in a matter of minutes pilate turned jesus over to an angry crowd to be crucified and just think of the irony pilate judged the truth He sentenced the truth, he scourged the truth, he mocked the truth, he crucified the truth. When he asked Jesus, what is the truth, truth was standing right in front of him. Was standing right in front of him. Listen, Christianity claims loudly to be the truth. Now, if you don't believe that, think about this. Jesus, in John 14, declared that he was the way the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me, as Jesus said. So what that means is this. Truth is a person. In John 17, 7, Jesus said, Sanctify them, Lord, with your truth. Your word is truth. So Jesus is truth. The word of God is truth. And we are called to be a people who know the truth, who love the truth, who speak the truth, who walk in truth and truthfulness. So Paul says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So we wear this belt being committed to knowing, speaking, living the truth. So Paul is saying we must put on the truth of God like a belt. It must be the first foundational piece that we put on. Without it, all other pieces are going to fall off because truth holds everything together. And this highlights for us the foundational nature of truth in the Christian life and how we are able to stand against the evil one. We do so by putting on as a belt truth. It's the truth. Think about this. It's the truth of the gospel of God who eternally exists and made the whole universe by the word of his power. It's the truth of who we are 
created in the image of God, yet fallen in sin. And in our fallenness, the Bible calls us children of wrath and enemies of God. Therefore, our greatest need is not a better job, a better relationship, a better this or better that. Our greatest need is that we must be saved from our sin. We must be saved from our sin. And the truth of the gospel is the truth of a God who sent his one and only son to become like us in every way, yet without sin, to save us in every way from our sin. The truth that he suffered and he died in your place and my place by taking on your sin and my sin in his body and paying the penalty and the punishment for us. The truth that he died the death that we deserve so that we could receive his life, life that we could never deserve. Yet it is received by grace, not by us finding something to do to earn it. It's the truth that after three days, Jesus rose from the dead, conquering death and the grave. It's the truth that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he intercedes for us. The Bible says that Jesus lives to pray for us. He's praying for us even now. The truth that no one can snatch us from his hand. No one can snatch us from his hand. The truth that we are now heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. The good news that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And therefore, we are not ashamed of it. All of these truths and more are daily truths that we are called to put on before we put on anything else. When was the last time you began your day by saying, here's what I know to be true? And go with that checklist of what Christ has done for you. Listen, not only are we called to know truth, we are called to live in truthfulness. We are called to live with integrity. Think of it like this. In ancient times, the biggest industry in the world in ancient times was the pottery industry. And pottery varied in quality just like everything we buy today differs in quality, meaning you get what you pay for. But the cheapest pottery was thick and solid and did not require much skill to make. And it's found everywhere all, all, over all archaeological sites. Yet the finest pottery... The most expensive pottery was, was thin. It was a clear color, and it came at a high price. But because it was thin, it was very fragile, both before and after firing, and it would often crack in the oven. Now, cracked pottery should have been thrown away, but dishonest dealers had the habit of filling in the cracks with a hard, what's called pearl wax, that would blend in with the color of the pottery. This made the cracks basically undetectable in the shops, especially when it was painted or glazed. But the wax was immediately detected when the pottery was held up to the sun. And all of a sudden, you could see all the dark lines. It was said that the artificial element was detected by sun testing. So honest dealers would mark all of their products with the caption, without wax 
which begs the question, brothers and sisters today, is your life without wax? How often are you living honestly before God, before others, even before yourself? How often do we lift our lives up to the sun and compare our lives, measure our lives there and allow that sun, him, to shine upon us? Brothers and sisters, if we are not careful, we begin to live lives where we're not honest with God, we're not honest with others, and we are not honest with ourselves. And let me just say this this morning, all of sin, every sin is predicated upon a lie. For instance, idolatry is based on the lie that God is not sufficient, that God is not enough, or that God is not worthy. Murder is rooted in the lie of believing that something else is more important than that person who has been made in the image of God. Adultery stems from believing the lie that the greater satisfaction can be found outside of the marriage covenant. Theft begins when we believe that we have to have that, whatever it is, at any means necessary. All sin predicated upon believing a lie. But let me end our time together this way. The soldier's belt not only stabilized the other pieces of the armor, not only did it help, help the tunic stay up, it also bore some of the weights, relieving the weight upon the shoulders of the soldiers. Without it, the soldiers were forced to bear the whole weight of everything. Most importantly, that cumbersome breastplate that they would wear. It has been said that the weight of a soldier's full-service marching armor was around 66 pounds that they would have to carry, yet that belt would help with the weight. Please don't miss the spiritual connection this morning. Without the belt of truth, without putting on that belt ourselves, we're left with the burdensome responsibility of carrying the weight of our own breastplate. Meaning, you have to carry the weight for your own righteousness. Instead of giving, or instead of accepting or receiving the righteousness that God gives us, we're on the hook for it. Instead of accepting and being acceptable in his sight because of your faith in Jesus, we're responsible for becoming perfect in his sight. And if you think you can do that, I'm just saying as a pastor, good luck with that. Good luck with that. If you think you can become perfect in the sight of God apart from Jesus, good luck with that. Yet with God's truth strapped to us, Holding us together, here's what it does. It relieves us of the pressure. It relieves us of having to do what we could never do in the first place. His truth reveals that righteousness has been given to us through our faith in Jesus Christ. Freeing us from living under a weight that we could never carry anyway. Oh, how that frees us. Wrap yourself in him today. Wrap yourself in truth today, for without truth, brothers and sisters, we will never stand. We'll never stand, which begs the question today, are you standing? Are you currently standing? Now, if for some reason you're not standing, I pray that you're falling upon him. But are you standing? Are you ready? 
Are you ready for the battles? Are you ready? Listen, if we wake up every day knowing there's an enemy and he's going to do everything to attack us, then we're not going to be surprised when attacks come. Are we ready? Let me ask you this question. What is your truth? What is your truth? If you answer that question by saying, my truth is, and then you repeat a whole lot of words centered around what you think about everything, let me say this, you're in trouble. What is my truth? My truth is Jesus Christ. That is my truth. My truth is Jesus. It is what he has done for me, who he is for me, who he forever will be. He is my truth. And I want to end today with words. I have no idea who originally said this, but I do know this. In the 24 years of pastoring at this church, my dad said this over and over and over again, and I wrote this in every Bible I own. And I'm going to actually put it on the screen. I almost put his name to it, but I didn't want somebody to look it up and say, no, I found it. It's somebody else. But, but dad would always say this. Truth will stand when the world's on fire. Truth will stand when the world's on fire. Will you be standing with it? Will you be standing with him when it all goes down, this going down? Oh, to God, that we would wrap ourselves in his truth, that who he says, what he says we are, what he says we need, the only way that we can get it, that we would believe that, that we would live that, that that would be the markings of our lives, and our lives would be marked by his truth and then our truthfulness. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. We're going to call Brother Frank and the musicians forward as we enter this time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray together. Oh, God, the God of all truth. Lord, you are truth. Truth is a person and truth can be known and must be known. God, I pray today that every person in this room would be wrapped in the truth of who you are, wrapped in the truth of what you have done for us. In Christ, what we could never do for ourselves, wrapped in the truth of what we have waiting for us in eternity, but also the truth of God, you are present with us now, holding us together. In fact, your word says in Colossians 1, Jesus, that's what you do. You hold us together. So I pray, God, that every life in this room or who will be in this room would ask that question today. Am I standing? And what am I standing on? Am I standing on the foundation of Jesus Christ? Am I standing on the solid rock? Or have I shifted the foundation? Am I standing on something else? Am I ready? Am I ready for the battles that will come? Because I'm living in a spiritual world with an enemy that wants to deceive. Am I ready? And how, how am I currently responding to truth? Lord, just finish this time. In Jesus' name, amen.